Hello, everyone, and welcome to Spoiler Alert, a weekly talk radio show for TV and movie lovers. I'm your lady host, Sonia Stanger, and I'm joined, as always, by my two dear co-hosts, Sean Denham and Jeremy Legui. How's it going, pals? Hello. Oh, you That's know. Cool. It's going good. It's, uh, it's a turbulent uh, existence on the prairies. Mm-hmm. And... Tur- tumble-washing turbulence. Yeah. That's us. Cool. Turbulence is afoot. And that's relevant <laughs> because, listeners, this week we're tackling a more serious subject than you're used to hearing from us. For the last month, along with the rest of the world, we've watched the deadly escalation of the Israeli occupation of Palestine, where over 10,000 civilians have now been killed. Despite the clear international consensus that Israel's attack on Gaza constitutes the war crime of collective punishment, and that they've committed numerous other war crimes like targeting hospitals and schools and using chemical weapons like white phosphorus, many Western governments, including Canada, continue to extend Israel their unwavering support. We feel this is wrong, to say the least, that staying silent is an endorsement of this genocide and that history will look back and condemn the world for our inaction as Gaza is raised to the ground. We join the millions of voices from around the world calling for an immediate ceasefire. And today, in solidarity, we're discussing Palestinian films. With that being said, guys, is there anything you want to say before we get into our discussion of the films we chose? Um, Yeah. You go first, Sean. Well, just that I will admit that I was pretty hesitant to do like as for have this as a show topic just it was like I feel obvious like I identify as a bit of a dum-dum and so I was like am I in a place to be even speaking anywhere near this but it's also the alternative is you know nothing so (laughs) yeah better than that but it's also it doesn't make a good. It doesn't make a feel good week. Even though we did watch some some great hopeful films this week, but mm-hmm. yeah, I thanks for naming that, Sean, because I think that's like important to say. And one of the things I kind of wanted to say at the outset is that I think we've been really sold this narrative that this is such a complex issue that you like have to have a PhD in political science or history to understand or speak on it at all. And I think that is partly to, like, keep us silent. So it's important, obviously, to educate ourselves. We don't just want to, like, parrot the things that we're hearing. But I think it is really important that the average person, like, pays attention and is willing to to speak out about this because otherwise that's how, you know, injustices are are upheld. Yeah, and I think we're, well, I think we're pretty used to kind of, like, especially with our history, like, just putting things in a box that we're kind of comfortable with. And saying, like, oh, geez, that sucks. And then just sort of, like, trucking along. And I think that, I mean, this is a long-standing issue that we've kind of done that with. And there's things that we're used to hearing about, like, on the news and all that sort of stuff. And it's also so far away that it also kind of, like, seems like it's just, like, another news story or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think that, like, we're humans and we put things in boxes. And that's just sort of how we comprehend stuff. And, like, it might be good to just be like, oh... Like, I think we can all agree that people dying is a bad box that we should all not want. And, like, that's an easy thing to get on the side of. Like, I think that's quite an easy kind of line to draw. So, I, you know, I I think it's weird because there are a lot of people who make things about things that this is not necessarily about. 
Yeah. Uh, in terms of like the religious aspect or, you know, like that whole, but honestly, like, I think like if people would just like, if, we, if we're all cool with people not dying, that's a really great first step and yeah. then we'll work out the other stuff. <laughs> but uh, it doesn't have to be this like, let's just start there. Thing, <laughs> this thing where you like presume a bunch of other thoughts because you're anti-war or, you know, like, mm-hmm. I don't even know if we call it war, but like, well, you know what I mean? Yeah, it, that's a good point. And I think, yeah, yeah that's, so, anyway. one of the, that's one of the other things I wanted to kind of like say is I think one of the reasons this topic makes people so uncomfortable, especially in the West, is that we have been, uh, again, like kind of sold the narrative that it's anti-Semitic to be critical of Israel. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say it's not. Um, Zionism, which is the like political ideology that kind of underscores Israel in its current iteration, is not the same thing as Judaism. To equate the two is actually really problematic. Um, Huge. One is a you know thousand years year old ethno religion, and the other is a very <laughs> modern political ideology that started in the late nineteenth century. Um, and there are many many Jewish people in the world who are not Zionists and are very critical of Zionism. So, just to you know put, put let let that go right at the beginning of this discussion. We do not condone anti-Semitism. We think it's really important to combat it everywhere. This is a moment where, unfortunately, I think some like bad faith actors will take the opportunity to try and sneak anti-Semitism into the rhetoric. And we have to be really mindful of that. But just know that being critical of the Israeli government is not the same as being anti-Semitic. Thank you for listening to my TED talk. Okay. It's kind of what, but it's kind of like comparing like motor oil and donuts. Yeah. You know, like, it's just like, oh, those certainly go together, and they do not. Well, there is, so. that, there is that classic structure in Harbor Landing that is a taco time oil change place. So, <laughs> and some, sometimes... There's a sometimes, metaphor, there's a, there's a metaphor a, there, for sure. <laughs> so I was thinking that it might make sense to go um, chronologically by the time period depicted in the films that we chose. I think um, that's a good idea. Cool. So let's do that. So yeah, listeners, we each chose a Palestinian film this week, and we're going to take turns talking about all three. Um, So that means that my choice is first. Um, This is a 2021 film by uh, Jordanian-Palestinian director Darin Salam called Farha. Um, And this is a Netflix production that essentially um, kind of recounts one young girl's experience of the Nekba, which is um, the Palestinian word for what they call the catastrophe, the um, 1948 kind of like series of events where Britain handed Palestine, uh, historic Palestine over to what became Israel, um, kind of some Zionist militias. And they, uh, I mean, to put it like bluntly, like ripped through mm-hmm. Palestine, displaced um, three quarters of a million Palestinians, um, many of whom are actually the inhabitants of the Gaza Strip today, uh, and, you know, killed tens of thousands. So it was sort of the original ethnic cleansing of Palestine, the Nakba. Um, so, yeah, so this is uh, about Farha, who I think is like maybe 12 or 13-ish. Um, 14. She's, she's 14? She's 14. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's it's her experience um as the Nekba kind of begins. And uh, her father, who's like the mayor of their village, um, tries to send her away with some friends who live in the city. 
and she refuses to leave his side because, you know, she doesn't want to be separated from him. And so as their village is kind of under siege, um, he locks her up in this little, like, storage space, kind of like, I guess, like a dry goods, like, um, I can't think of the it's word. A, yeah, I'm trying to think it's of. a storehouse, I think. I yeah, like a storehouse, yeah, in their kind of yeah. courtyard, like, boards up the door and then goes off to, to fight, essentially. Um, so what'd you guys think of this one? Uh, I, 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 I'm going to say something, Sean, because this is, this is all encompassing and this is a very important moment to have for films released in 2021 and 2022. All of the things we watched were approximately 90 minutes Mm. and I think they were all better for it. Yeah. I I think like, I think that there was some, like, I don't know if I've watched anything that's that short, you know, like Mr. Bean's Holiday, maybe. Might be the last thing that kind of comes and, to mind. And those two films are always mentioned in, in the same. Yeah, film. yeah, very yeah. similar. Um, but uh, I will say that I do think the runtime of this, of all three of these, especially Farha, was a strength mm-hmm. towards like telling the stories that they wanted to tell. And it is like it's a gripe of mine. I know I've been vo- I've voiced it many a time, but I do feel like. Likely for budget reasons, you know, they were very pragmatic and took scissors to things, and that's the way that this went down. But I do appreciate it. Anyway, Sean, go with your actual well, your actual things. No, I, I I agree that the further we stray from God's light is making our films four hours long. Yeah, we that is just in inexcusable. My other <laughs> um, vulnerable piece is that I thought that your pick was Gaza fights for freedom. Oh no! <laughs> so, um, but <laughs> which was honestly a true horror film. It was really hard to watch. Um, well, the good, so, the good slash bad news is they. So was Farhashan. So yeah, um, we so can we can maybe for this one. You guys can give me some a recap. Yeah, or... sounds good. And maybe we can squeeze in a little moment for Gaza fights for freedom at the end because I also watched that recently. Sorry for the confusion. Oh, no. No, I was me. Where um, listeners might not know that we had a skitter scatter a few weeks, honestly, putting this together. Logistics, logistics have yeah. been at play, and we do like I did. I mentioned Gaza fights for freedom in the group chat, um, so I can see where the the confusion lay. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, Farha is also brutal. Um, yes, it a- is. But it like we we get the perspective of Farha, the main character, and I think that like seeing what happens through her specific lens is kind of a, a very useful take in terms of what happens. Uh, it's kind of weird in that it's like, I'm trying to think of like other movies where it's kind of just this one actress alone for a lot of the time, literally peeking out at things that are happening outside of this storehouse. Mm-hmm. So um, it is kind of like more horrific in that way, but we can kind of like adopt her perspective as like we do have a lot of like first person camera through a little crack or a little hole. Is that like the, the whole film is her in the star house? It's, it's like after I would say about like 20 or 20 minutes or so. Yeah. She's kind of like just living her life, hoping to go to school. <laughs> like that's kind of her dream, which is a little wild. And her father lets her go to school. Um, but before she's able, she has to move right. Like mm-hmm. into the city to go. But before that's able to happen, the, Nikba. You know, bad stuff occurs. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, 
it yeah it was good uh i f felt like i could kind of like feel the like their set was that sort of space and i think they made use of it in a clever way and like had to kind of like approach approach it sort of more of like a logistical problem rather than like what was best for the story but whole boy did it work mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah i was i was thinking about that like the kind of decision to tell the story of this you know mass uh tragedy this this like mm -hmm. huge injustice through this one very particular lens like in this very mm -hmm. you know zoomed in way and it's interesting because in a way like if this if if you didn't know anything else about the nekba this wouldn't kind of give you necessarily maybe a sense of the full scale and gravity of the issue but mm -hmm. also i think there is some merit in really personalizing this kind of tragedy and i think like one of the things yeah. that i've seen people talking about recently is like how important it is to see palestinians as individual human beings and not just as numbers right like when we mm -hmm. are so used to hearing about uh, people in terms of their tragedy and this like mass violence, especially I think given the broader political context of the way that um, West Asian and Arab folks have been dehumanized in the West, like just think about since 9-11, like what our mass media has, has told us about Arab people. It is so racist and has a political agenda. And so I think like combating that dehumanization with this like intense personalization of this one story, I think there's some like merit to that. Um, mm -hmm. And Karam Tahir, the actress who plays Farha, her performance is like so compelling. Um, like, yeah, just the, the raw emotion that she goes through. And I think there's some kind of like metaphor at play there as well in terms of, like her being trapped, kind of that, like the 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 way she descends into like hopelessness, the way she like attempts to fight back, and then, um, yeah. Uh, anyway, there's also like we should say if you're planning to watch this, it's it is a yes. very tough watch. There's some really horrible, violent stuff um, involving a baby. I'll just say that. Uh, and like a pregnant woman and a, a young family. Um, yeah, I think it's like maybe a, a a somewhat manageable though, like entry point into considering the gravity of the like tragedy that the Nekba was. I don't know. <laughs> well, and I think like it also does a really good job of like actually adding some context to something that is, it is complicated in terms of like, we do think of not North American history as like World War Two, and then the next thing happened in Vietnam or, you know, like we do kind of like brush over some pretty important stuff. So there is just some sort of like, oh, this happened in 48, mm -hmm. you know, like, like, so I, you know, I was aware that stuff had happened, but like the actual detail, like I had no clue. Yeah. So, I mean, it is a good entry point into just sort of like understanding the complexity of that area and what happened. And ultimately, I think that, like, by humanizing things, we kind of, well, ultimately, I mean, these are artists making art and, like, art, that's its job. So mm -hmm. I don't think that it's kind of, like, surprising, but it is weird to kind of get, like, a very 
normal perspective that we would expect from like these could be any groups of people yeah anywhere on the planet right like that's the but uh you know again we just sort of like oh that's what happens over there yeah (laughs) just sort of hand wave the whole the whole issue um and then sanja i do think oh sorry go ahead no no, i I I was gonna say i i do think you're right in terms of like the analogy between what's happening to the greater people people now who are also literally in a box peeking out unable to kind of escape yeah and like just trying to figure out various ways to survive or get out where you know likely some you know some small percentage will actually be able to do so just because of the way everything's gone down mm-hmm. well and that like getting out actually means probably that land being taken by Israel like that is yeah. ultimately the plan it, they they haven't yeah. even made that a secret the plan is very much to basically chase people out of Gaza and relocate them to North Sinai so that they can develop real estate there anyway we, we can talk about that more um but yeah it, it, your point about the hand waving as well Jer I think it's like important for people to recognize that our governments in the west are actually deeply involved in this conflict that, you know, the U.S. and Canada both mm-hmm. supply money and arms to Israel, have, you know, politically been very supportive. So it's not detached from us in any way, even. And I think it's, like, important for us to think about how we're complicit, let alone in the ways it's, like, analogous to our own colonial violence here. Like, the stories are actually, there's a lot of similarities. Um, mm-hmm. But let's move on to our second film, maybe, so that we can t- have one that we've all seen. Um, Jared, this was your pick. Why don't you tell us about it? Uh, so I picked a, a little, a nice little movie called Divine Intervention, um, mm-hmm. which was uh, from 2002, and I believe it's depicting 2002. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't think, it, I think it's just a modern take. Uh, directed and written by, I'm going to mess it up, Elia Suleiman? Elia Suleiman. Pretty, oh, so far off. Okay. You were close. Uh, <laughs> I should just, I should just defer to Sanj whenever I need help with pronunciation. English, French, it doesn't matter. I looked it up. Um... <laughs> Anyway, um, I couldn't find a pronunciation. Mm. I, I should have just used the robot. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it is... the robot. <laughs> uh, it is, a, well, it's described as a surreal black comedy. I really, really like this movie mm-hmm. uh, in a huge way. Uh, so it's kind of, uh, I don't know if we've talked about Tampopo before, which is a Japanese film about uh, ramen shop, mm-hmm. but it's kind of it's kind of like the Palestinian version of that. And it's sort of all these weird little stories and how they maybe interact or don't interact set in, uh, you know, a very occupied 2002 Palestinian state. And uh, it's kind of great in the way that these people like interact with each other and do things that kind of are really weird or strange that seem kind of funny. And then later on, you kind of find out what's going on. I think my favorite situation that I'm willing to spoil on the radio is there's a scene of a guy like collecting all of these beer bottles and like I think they show the same scene multiple times yeah. like I think they use footage again and again and so it's just kind of this monotonous thing but then the police start hassling him and he just starts hurling these bottles oh yeah <laughs> well yeah I think and, he like, was like preparing yes oh definitely right but it's just this like kind of like push and pull where we get these so the film opens with all these I'm going to call them boys chasing santa claus and then they stab him um which (laughs) 
which, which people can necessarily read start a comedy, but <laughs> I definitely it definitely wrote me in. Black, um, yeah, black actually, black comedy is the key comedy. the key modifier <laughs> yes. there because it is dark. Well, yeah, and um, it's kind of hard to describe just because there's so many kind of little stories going on. Um, kind of central to which is this this guy whose father is not doing well. And then he has to meet his, I will say, girlfriend at mm-hmm. a military checkpoint where they have these very sensual hand rubbing very, scenes. Very hot. Very hot <laughs> hand so stuff. Good. Uh, and then it kind of turns out that she's like maybe a secret agent or something. Or like, uh, uh, or has supernatural powers. Well, a little bit of, a little bit of column A, of, a little bit of column B. Yeah. Uh, I will not spoil a really great sort of sequence with a balloon uh, to elude some guards. Mm -hmm. Um, But honestly, like, I think you guys, this is like a top 20 film for me. Like, it is so good. I liked it a lot. I've kind of watched it a couple times. Uh, It's just so wild. And then the whole thing is set against the backdrop of, like, a very comfortable occupation. Mm. Uh, Because in 2002, things were like... I don't want to say not as bad, but, uh, you know, people do have wealth. Things sort of are, like, more kind of organized. A lot of the characters seem a lot more comfortable with, like, dealing with the, I'll call police uh, at this time. Um, so it is just kind of this wild setting to kind of have this sort of life in. Well, I think it's that, it's that juxtaposition of, like, there's some level of comfort, but with the backdrop of completely restricted political freedoms like with that backdrop of the repression of military checkpoints and the idf coming and essentially cataloging all of the father's valuables um Mm -hmm. which i think is like a metaphor for the countless ways that israel has stolen in some cases literally people's houses like to this day in the west bank settlers Jewish settlers will come and just chase a family out of their house and say, this is our house now. Like, it's it's the most kind of explicit and blunt form of colonialism I think people could would be shocked to realize is true. Um, so, yeah, I think it's that, like, he, he really masterfully creates this tension of the monotonous, the normal, in mm-hmm. the backdrop of this, like, intense 60 years at that point long repression um but then like there's there's some like really great resistance characters yeah like the uh i don't know what we call her the the hot lady <laughs> I don't his know lover i don't name. know the lover yeah. when she is just like strutting sunglasses on like past or towards an israeli checkpoint and they're confused and they're like should we do something and then she just like uses her power to strut past them and then it collapses and the soundtrack Mm -hmm. is really amazing yeah yeah it really adds to that to that scene i love that of that scene and also she has a really great choreography dance fight sequence with um with five israeli soldiers near the end too that it was so good incredible Mm -hmm. yeah and what's really cool is um She's played by um, Manal Kader, who's a, a journalist in real life. And um, apparently that scene, I was watching an interview with Ilya Suleiman, 
And he was talking about how that scene where she walks through the checkpoint looking really hot is actually inspired mm -hmm. by a real situation where she she crossed through a military checkpoint on foot and essentially said, shoot me, I dare you. And they didn't, and mm -hmm. she walked through. Um, so, yeah, like, I, um, I heard it, I was reading something where it described his kind of, like, oeuvre as, like, liberatory imagining. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's so true. Like, it's this really... I don't know, really powerful but small depictions of, like, liberation. Like, one of my favorite scenes is when uh, the main character, who I think is just called S, and he's actually played by Ilya Suleiman, um, is, like, driving in his car, and he's eating an apricot, and he drives past a tank, and he, like, happens to throw the pit out the window right as he's driving by the tank, and the tank explodes. And there's right. just something so, like, I don't know, so magical about... The defeat of this like military symbol by this like beautiful native fruit. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, it this, made me want to watch all of his movies. Also, he also uh, he he does stuff like that a few times. And my favorite is uh, something very sad happens. A couple very sad things happen, and near the end of the movie, his character is kind of like weeping, and we don't see a lot out of him. Uh, like he's kind of expressionless, but. He, like, has some nice post-it notes and stuff. But the only way he's able to weep is by cutting an, an onion. Uh, which which also, like, again, is this really cool play between, like, this sort of absurdist thing that's, like, <laughs> Jacques Tati going on in this, like, really crazy situation. So there's, a, there's so much going on, uh, and it really is kind of hard to describe, which is good. So <laughs> I keep thinking of Santa Claus. You guys saw the callback to Santa later in the hospital? Yeah. Yeah, yeah like yeah. that thing where you're like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Where he's he's getting he's getting getting patched yes, up. But I was confused uh, about whether so... it was the same Santa or a different Santa. I assume it's it was a man dressed as Santa and that they didn't like that. And so he had to go to the hospital, but uh well, it's usually you know, when you get like survived a, a kitchen attack. knife in your torso, other things happen, but no, just head on down to the hospital. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, well yeah, that's why really I wasn't good. sure. Uh, yeah. What but if with you're that, Santa's stomach. <laughs> with that, we're going to take a break, uh, <laughs> debate whether or not it was the real Santa, and we'll be right back talking more Palestinian films here on 91.3 FM CJTR Regina Community Radio, tuned into the community. Welcome back to Spoiler Alert. We are going to get back to talking about Palestinian films in just a minute. Uh, but first, we're going to play a little game lovingly called The Game. It's game time, people. Whoa. For those who don't know, or if you're just tuning in, The Game is where I spend, I think it was like two minutes this week, looking for a title related to our topic that these two have hopefully not seen or heard about. I tell them the title. They tell me what they think it's about. I tell them what it's really about. And we all have a great time. Guys, are you ready to play the game? I'm yeah. ready. This week's title is It Must Be Heaven. That title again, It Must Be Heaven. It Must Be must Heaven. Be heaven. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think this is about um, a Palestinian woman in the occupied West Bank who is understandably uh, very full of rage and anger about 
the occupation of her homeland and has an ongoing like escalating feud with um one of the settlers who has moved in like near her um and they kind of it, I, I imagine it like similar to some of the early scenes in divine intervention where they're mm-hmm. like throwing garbage in each other's yard and like kind of petty neighbor squabbles but that like s- like are symbols for this greater conflict and then one morning they wake up and they live in a universe where there's a peaceful coexistence between israelis and palestinians there's like a true mm-hmm. two two state solution and they basically are like trying to figure out like how this happened and how they were kind of transported overnight and they think it must be heaven wow there we go and then i guess maybe they like maybe they like go back to the real world at some point and like use some knowledge i don't know (laughs) we need Mm -hmm. to flesh out the third act there's some resolution there uh sean um i believe that this film is about a child who yeah lives in uh like Gaza and sees a lot of, you know, um, real world trials and tribulations to say the least. And as a form of like fantasy escapism, he like will transport himself to like a world where things are, you know, very heavenly, perfect. And he will escape to this place. He'll escape to this fantasy like more and more often and his family gets concerned about where he keeps disappearing to. Mm-hmm. I'm giving it's what's that? What's the film with the, um, oh, with the oh my God, scary uh, guy with eyes, eyes on his hand? I was Very literally thinking, I was literally like, this sounds kind of like a Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro film. That's so yeah, funny it's, that you said that. It's very, that's, that's the vibe that I'm getting. That was so far from my mind. It's just I, like, I was huh? picking up, I was picking up Sean's wavelength. Yeah. <laughs> Me just do it. I, listeners can't see. I'm doing the hand motion of eyes on my hands. Something I will um, personally never forget. Well, there we go. Uh, well, I would like to say that you're both wrongs in all ways, shapes, and forms. Both uh, wrongs. This, this, it's yeah. It's a little bit. It's a little bit more literal uh, in the sense of this. Um, but uh, this is the other film by Sanja, if you wouldn't mind. Ilya uh, Suleiman. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, it was the other film I was thinking of picking. Um, which seems like it has more kind of critical acclaim, but everyone cut like it's from 2019, so everyone was kind of like maybe it's not as good as um, Divine Divine Inter- Intervention, which was sort of like his like big big bigger deal, I guess, bigger launch. I don't know if you want to call. Yeah, it Yeah, and he also has one called The Time That Remains. That's another his other like really big one. Yes. Uh, anyway, but um, it must be heaven uh, is about uh, him in kind of like a pseudo like it's he's kind of playing himself but kind of not as as he was again anyway it's about him escaping palestine uh for a new beginning and so he goes to paris and then he goes to new york and all these different places but he still just kind of has the same basic problems that he did back home Mm. so uh, i think it kind of addresses the sort of like what i presume to be widely held idea that like if we could just get out of here things would be better Mm. and then um apparently he does that and that's not the case it is kind of it's again a comedy uh it's an absurdist comedy so i think it's kind of like a good way to kind of approach that whole um 
way of life, maybe. <laughs> but uh, it is supposed to be really, really great, and I'm actually really excited to watch it because of Divine Intervention, so uh, it's definitely, definitely worth a check out. Uh, it was released in 20, uh, 2019, as I said. Uh, it had a bunch of awards, and it kind of looks like it, like, almost won a bunch of really big awards. Like, it just, like, fell short of a few things at Cannes, but uh, it's still, um, it's still pre looking pretty good. Yeah, I yeah, definitely I... want to watch okay. it. Yeah, thank you for playing the game. Thank, thank you, you so Jer. much. All right, well, let's get back to talking about our selections uh, from Palestinian films. Um, is there anything else we want to say about Divine Intervention? Um, I do want to talk about the scene where a woman go walks up to like uh, an Israeli like police officer and is asking for directions. Oh, and he's yeah. Like, uh, and he's like, oh, I don't really know. And so then he gets out and pulls out a man from the back that's like blindfolded and uh and bound and he's like can you give this woman directions and then he's like oh yeah you you can either go this way or you go this way and she gives her directions and then she's like okay thank you so much and then he goes back into the back of the, of the cop car um that was a very like it's just so it's like monty python is silly but it's also mm -hmm. so so dark mm -hmm. but i all but I also, the follow-up scene where she comes back the next day for more directions and he does the same thing and finds that his captive is no longer in the back and then peels out in his car uh, also kind of, you know, that plays is nice, with like... a nice wrap-up to that yeah. storyline. <laughs> it's not... A nice not twist on that one. No concerns about having a captive man held in a van, but not having a captive man held in a van is a very big problem. Well, yeah, I mean, like... I think I think it's an interesting like representation of many different things. One, in case folks don't know, the Israeli government does does detain tens of thousands of Palestinians often without trial um as part of kind of the apartheid system that exists within Israel and historic Palestine. Um and I think it's like I to me what that was saying is like whose homeland is this? Like, who is who is familiar with the land? Who is from here, basically? Mm -hmm. Right. Not yeah. that you have to be from somewhere to live somewhere, but the kind of claim that this is, like, the ancestral home, I think it was sort of commenting on that. Um, But, yeah, just so powerful, too. Like, I was also very interested in the character of the, like, tourist woman, who I think was French, mm -hmm. and kind of her complete non-reaction to him yeah. like pulling a prisoner out of the back of the van to give her directions like what did you guys make of that and just like the conceit of like what are you why why are you touring like why are you here well right and because that's so real yeah mm -hmm. like israel markets itself to to the west so broadly as this like beautiful tourist destination and people do kind of like skirt it's this idea i think that like there there is a very real like tourism industry that kind of skirts around and is complicit in the occupation and apartheid mm -hmm. yeah yeah but I, no i think i think the, the whole film is like a really great example i again I, it's hard to draw lines between now like 
2022 and 2002, just because I do think that there was sort of like this weird stability then in terms of like people understanding that this was sort of the system they lived within and like mm. subverting it through comedy and that like all, all of that sort of stuff. Because it is just sort of chock full with all of these like really kind of crazy and invent, well, crazy ways that they've kind of just become accustomed to things that are not normal. You know, like there's the scenes where there is a car that drives up and shoots a man's home and then he's just like kind of got the stuff ready to clean it up again. And, you know, later some police come to kind of talk to him about how what happened and he was, it sort of becomes about the fact that because it happened he got a new car. You know, like, it's just not actually, like, looking at the actual problem. Um, and uh, I think it's just so skillfully done throughout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was very struck. I feel like all three of the films that we're kind of talking about did have, like, such a strong, like, visual language. Mm-hmm. Like, so, so strong. So visual. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, anything else to add there before we move on? No, good to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. All right, so let's move on to Sean's choice then. My Sean? choice is from 2020, a film called Gaza Manamur um, by filmmakers Tarzan Nasser and Arab Nasser. Um, and it is about uh, Isa, an old fisherman in Gaza, and he's trying to um, f- sort of find the courage to tell a woman that he loves her and they are you know they're like 60 plus ish and he just goes through all these sort of cute ways um of trying to work up the courage he she is a seamstress he gets her to hem his pants even though he doesn't need them to be hemmed and now they're really short and she is confused by him uh and why he keeps trying to um make connections with her um and it's just very sweet but also um against the backdrop of like other things happening obviously but then also like private other stories other hopeful stories just happening like throughout oh and also then he finds a statue of apollo in his <laughs> in his fishing nets and thinks that, that is a good sign for his love and it's also this kind of like act of resistance where he keeps it instead of like mm-hmm. turning it over to the authorities um yeah yeah and there is like a, yeah a constant authoritarianism through like everyone is always getting questions or hassled by authorities um for literally just he's he found something in the water mm-hmm. yeah and this one said will- oh sorry go ahead jerry yeah no i was gonna say the same thing Sanj. it's set in yeah. 2020 so things are a lot worse uh, in terms of the conditions of where they live and, uh, you know, there's a, a, a lot of things have kind of broken down in the 20 years since the previous film, not that they're linked at all, but it was pretty stark watching mm-hmm. the two sort of set pieces for each of them. Yeah. Well, I think, I so I, I don't want to, I, I kind of want to quibble, Jer, because I think yeah. we do have this idea, like I think there's kind of this idea in the West that like this all started on October 7th of this year. And I think there mm-hmm. is this idea that like there's such a difference now to their what to to what there was say in 2002. Things were also so bad in 2002. Oh yeah. And like 
part of it is the location also. So this is set in Gaza, and the previous film we were watching was in, like, occupied Palestine, like, near the West Bank, near Jerusalem. So it's like, mm-hmm. the conditions are different. But I, I, I'm hesitant to sort of, like, act as though things are so much worse now than they were then because there's, like, a direct line between conditions then which were bad and conditions now but yeah like i think it is the juxtaposition of like gaza and the west bank and how there's like different manifestations of the occupation in those two places because gaza has been under blockade by israel since 2005 i think um Mm -hmm. so yeah so that's like partly the like far worse conditions in this one is like like they've essentially been in a concentration camp for the last 20 years and and this one that's the backdrop of this one anyway well well and i also was going to talk a bit more this sort of just strengthens your point sanch um but it does look like a lot of the outdoor stuff is shot at night and i do think that's for ease in terms of population control and all that sort of stuff but i also kind of the whole time watching it was sort of wondering if it was also out of necessity Mm-hmm. Um, just because, like, I don't know, well, I, who knows what would happen, but I don't think that there's certainly any way you could have a bunch of cameras rolling with actors without getting hassled constantly. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, like, I just don't think that's possible. But pretty much, there's one sort of scene that's, like, out in the day at a, kind of a normal time, and that's sort of at the market, and all the rest of it is either indoors during the day or outside at night, mm-hmm. like, exclusively. Yeah, true. And so... I do wonder as well if that was part of, like, you know, like, literally, it was not possible for them to go outside with cameras. You know what I mean? Like, in the in the daytime for any length of time. So, mm-hmm. that kind of, like, occurred, like, I don't know that that's true, but it definitely gave me, like, uh, you're not allowed to be here uh, vibes from film school <laughs> that, yeah. We, yeah. that we also did. So. Well, and because, like, yeah, the surveillance from Israel is is unrelenting and you know they do have really advanced like military technology so like drones are a constant reality Mm -hmm. in the gaza strip and have been for a long time so yeah i think you're right and also i think it's interesting it that also i think like contributes to the like visual language of the film and that sense of like claustrophobia and like restricted movement and like kind of being trapped Mm -hmm. um I think it establishes that really effectively. Yeah. Well, and I think that also uh, Gaza Monomore kind of like really emphasizes the like, because it is a love story and he is trying to sort of court this woman, but so much more of it is about sort of him being detained and having to deal with authorities and just do all of that sort of, I don't know, stuff that he has to do to kind of live his life. And so I do think it kind of, like, points, like, because we're making a love story about being in Gaza, you know, 60% of it is about being detained immediately Mm -hmm. at this point, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So it's definitely, like, there. Yeah. Well, I think it's kind of similar to in Divine Intervention. I saw the, like, romance and love story as an analogy or metaphor for, like, the love between Palestinians and their homeland. Uh, Yeah. And like the connection to it. Um, also, there's an interesting relationship between Sihan, his uh, 
his love interest and her adult daughter that she lives with. Mm-hmm. They have some very contentious relationship. Um, and she, uh, they just like, um, I don't know the, the prickliness of how no one, neither of them could say anything to each other without them getting like taking offense to it or getting worked up some way. I thought that was a really interesting, like relationship it's just like between these two women yeah like i again i see it kind of as like an analogy of like progress versus tradition right like Mm -hmm. this idea of like moving forward as a palestinian people but also this like need to be rooted in in this tradition that's been like really disrupted and the tension between those two things and the background but yeah like so compelling like even without any understanding of the kind of like broader context of that history like, tension. Of their, yeah. Yeah. Still so compelling. You're just like, there's something in the, in their history that obviously like there's probably a lot there, but you know, that we don't get it spelled out for us, but we know that there's, there's a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm. But yeah. Uh, it, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jer. Well, I was just, this is sort of a, uh, what did you guys think of the end? When they laughed? Yeah, laugh. <laughs> yeah, because I, I don't like, know. Yeah. It it just like it, it felt like it kind of got to a point where like I don't know what more like I don't know what more they could have done, except have like some sort of big expression of love or whatever. Um, and I don't know if that was like the women figuring out why he was hanging around, like like it just kind of seemed a little a little weird to me. Uh, and again. I do kind of like, did they have to just stop filming? Like, was this like, they're out of money, they're out of time, they're out of location. Like they, they didn't set this up or something? Yeah. But wasn't the, and, uh, wasn't the actual end like them in the boat? It was, yes, of course. But I, like, it's still just like, that was sort of like the kind of, you know, after part, like, it's just like a little bit of the sort of, what do you call it? Epilogue situation, Den- I felt. Yes. Yeah, where, like the- whereas the, the like... Yeah, the, the actual, climax like, was him actually asking her to marry him, and then, yes. and then her daughter arrives home at the same time, and she just starts laughing her head off, and then all three of them just start laughing, and then the scene is over. Yes, and it was I was very confused. I was like, I must have missed something. <laughs> yeah, I was also um, confused, but I kind of think it was like. I don't know. I kind of thought it was like this resolution of this like big tension throughout and sort of like, I don't know. I think I ha- I'm having trouble like putting it into words exactly. You know, when you kind of like think you understand something, but then it's hard to actually explain it. Yeah. But like, mm-hmm. I think it was like he was so like the whole film is like him kind of building up, building up like this courage to approach her in any way. And there's kind of, I don't know, she, I think she's kind of like aware of it. And like her daughter like teases her about it at one point that he's like in love, that he has a crush on her. Um, And so I think it's kind of like this like peak of tension where he, he like asks her to marry him. And then the daughter walks in and I don't know, I thought it was kind of like this like acknowledgement of like the awkwardness of that and just the like, I don't know, absurdity of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was this, like, I don't know, like, acceptance almost, or just, like, it was, like, this immediate diffusion of that tension. Mm -hmm. But, like, so, 
uh, li- well, listeners don't know, but there's a phallic part of the Apollo statue with bre- which breaks off, mm-hmm. which plays an important role in yeah. the film, which we, we haven't really gotten into, but it is actually one of the funnier sort of elements of the whole thing. But, um, like, that moment where he kind of, like, gets out of trouble by giving it, like, by owning the situation and kind of just giving it to the police so that that issue's kind of resolved, kind of felt more poignant than the end with the relationship. And it's weird because we did spend a lot more time developing the relationship between the police and him than, like, we understand his feelings for the woman, but maybe not as much the other way around. Anyway, it yeah, just I was might like, be an odd pacing She might thing. say no when he asked her because I was like, I don't know where she where she's at. That's kind but of what know, I was expecting as well. But so. we know she didn't say no because then at the end they're together in his boat. And yes. Yes. what in happens se- is in a sexy time. They they're like in the boat, like yeah, about to about to consummate uh-huh. their love. And then we hear like uh an Israeli Defense Forces ship saying like You've crossed the border because essentially Gaza is restricted to a three mile chunk of the ocean, um, which they like make reference to multiple times. Like they're they're mm-hmm. blockaded even in the ocean. And basically they make the choice to like ignore that. They like kind of batten down the hatches of the boat and then continue on with their love. So I think like his relationship to the 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 police, the I mean, I think it's technically the Palestinian Authority, but there's a complex relationship yeah. between them and the Israelis. Anyway, the relation, relationship between the authorities and him and, like, her and him are entangled. Like, I don't think they're two separate things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think, like, there is, like, I don't know, in a way, like, that's, the, like, the actual realistic outcome of that would be that the Israelis would shoot their boat and they would be dead. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, which which full disclosure, I kind of, I thought that was where it was hit. Like, yeah. It was the, well, so. it's probably after after credits roll is probably maybe. Where we're at. But so I think like that like laughter scene is like fully moving into this realm of like no longer resisting the absurdity of the situation. I don't know. I, again, like mm-hmm. I can't quite tidily put words to it but right well and that's why my kind of vibe is that i think whatever they were trying to do needed more time right like that's kind of my and it was just weird to have like everything else be very paced and like very flowy and then this kind of like weird cut off to the situation where we get to the resolution anyway uh Mm -hmm. who who knows what could have happened uh a bajillion things and uh Maybe that's how they wrote it. Maybe it wasn't, but felt odd to me. Anyway, that's all. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think I think I would need to like watch it again. Like I think I need to like process it still. And I don't. Fair. I don't Do know. Think I the think editor... there's a world in which that was the choice. But sorry, Sean. Mm-hmm. You think the editor forgot to just put in a fart sound effect before that? <laughs> <laughs> probably. That's that, probably is that what you think that's yeah that's right i think that's one. probably what i missed yeah. um okay we only have a few minutes left do we really quickly want to touch on gaza fights for freedom sure we could it was um it was a high, it was a brutal watch gotta say yeah I it's i mean very... i'll just say like i would recommend that folks watch it if they want a better understanding of the situation in gaza and especially um 
you know, the idea that like peaceful protest is the way. Um, Palestinians have been trying to peacefully protest their occupation for decades. And so um, this is a documentary film by American filmmaker Abby Martin, who has done a lot of work in the region about the um, Great March of Return protests in, I think, 2018, which was a, you know, really long lasting series of protests where, um, yeah, uh, peaceful protesters would basically just approach um, the border to Israel and so much violence ensued. Like, we're met with just incredible amounts of violence from the IDF. So, yeah, it's a it's a tough watch. Um, anything else that you wanted to say about it, Sean? Um, no, not really, because it was mostly like, it was just kind of a, a, a timeline of like, you know, for people that don't know what, are starting from zero kind of mm-hmm. and it wasn't really yeah it didn't i don't know what i'm trying to say it wasn't a documentary in the sense of like i don't know it's a it was just all it was a lot for me there was like a family that was really brutal there was a lot of just heads exploding literally i don't know yeah it was not it was not a watch that i would like to watch again gotta say yeah And I think that's fair. And I think like for me, um, this is it kind of touches on this broader issue of like how we navigate that from our position of like safety and comfort in the West and like Mm -hmm. how we kind of make decisions to not look away, even when things are really hard and upsetting. Um, Obviously, like tending to our own well-being, you know, not like obsessively consuming things, but being aware and like, you know, I I just keep thinking about how like Palestinians don't have the opportunity to just like turn this off and look away. It's happening to them. And so like, I do think we kind of have some responsibility in the West to subject ourselves to like that unpleasantness because all it is for us is like upsetting, but for them it's like life and death. And that's not a personal call out to you, Sean. It's just an opportunity for me to like make that point. Um. But with that, that's actually all the time we have for this week. Um, So all the thanks to Saskatoon's The Garys for the use of our theme song, Manituna, to my co-hosts, Sean and Jeremy, everyone at CJTR, and to you, our listeners, for lending us your ears. The show is broadcast live Wednesdays at 6 p.m., rebroadcast Fridays at 3, and is available as a podcast on CJTR's website and anywhere else you get your podcasts. My Electric is coming up next. Take care and free Palestine. Bye. Bye. See ya.